Hello there. Welcome to the podcast that we call Frenchie, a show dedicated to the stories and legacies of the French-speaking Cajuns of World War II as told by the veterans themselves. I'm your host, Jason Terrio. For over 20 years, I've been interviewing World War II veterans and capturing their stories. Many of them were Cajuns, people of Acadian descent. When the young Cajuns went overseas, their ability to speak French proved invaluable to military operations, and it had a profound impact on their sense of Acadian identity. What emerged from this unique wartime experience was a long lost pride in their heritage. When the military needed bilingual interpreters, they called on Frenchy to bridge the language gap. The stories of the Cajuns of OSS are legendary. In the first two episodes of the podcast, we featured stories from Bob LeBlanc and Sam Broussard, both of whom were recruited by the Office of Strategic Services for their French language skills. Both came ashore at Normandy during the invasion of France and coordinated activities with the French underground. During the course of over two decades of research, I've come across additional World War II veterans who joined the OSS and had similar roles because of their French language skills. Orleans Petrie, who was a young French teacher from Cutoff, Louisiana when the war broke out, was one of them. He made four parachute jumps into France as a member of a small commando unit to provide the French resistance with weapons and supplies. Orleans Petrie was interviewed by his nephew in 1991. Years ago, I discovered this rare interview, the audio cassette tape, and the transcript at the archives at Nichols State University. Further research into his military background produced some OSS after-action reports, which had only been recently declassified by the National Archives. With it, we were able to piece together some of the details of his amazing story as a member of America's elite, multilingual special forces during World War II. French was spoken in the home, in the community, and at school. When I went to school at the age of six, I did not word, know a word of English. Had to learn English at school throughout 11 years. Came back home and spoke French all the time. My father only spoke French, my mother only spoke French. But as the years went by, my mother learned a few words of English. My father never did. Mother could express herself in English enough to do some business. But as far as the French, it was a community of French people, and it was strictly French. We were allowed to speak French at school. On the ground, you could speak French. In the classroom, you spoke English. There was only two French classes you were allowed, French one and French two. That was at the 10th and 11th grade level. But any time else, you were allowed to speak French on the school ground. But when you got to the classroom, you spoke English. In other words, you answered in English. The teacher would talk to you in English and you answer all your questions in English. But on the school ground, you spoke French. If you had a friend next to you in the classroom, you spoke French. Growing up along Bayou Lafourche, where many of the original Acadians migrated to after arriving in Louisiana, Petrie's family identified as Cajun, or La Cajun. He never heard of or knew about his Acadian ancestry until later in life. I think we consider ourselves French, but we always consider ourselves Cajun. Even in that day? Or, or even, even in those days, because in those days they spoke of the Kajang, and we were the Kajang, but I don't think they spoke of the Kajang in those days as we speak of them now. Now we speak of the, of the 
of the Acadians coming from Nova Scotia. We didn't know if I, I didn't know if my parents came from Nova Scotia or their parents came from Nova Scotia. All I know is that everybody spoke of Lake Hajan as people coming from Nova Scotia. Now, in those days, everybody was Lake Hajan because of the French that we spoke. And I would assume that it came down from Nova Scotia to the Acadian that came down and settled all the way along Bayou La Couche from Lafayette all the way down to Golden Meadow and past Deville. Bayou Lafourche was the lifeblood of the community. Nearly everyone and everything traveled by boat up and down the sleepy bayou. Petrie's family had a Model T Ford, one of the few families who did. Life was simple but hard, and a dollar went a long way. When he graduated high school in 1934, he had never been outside of Lafouche Parish before. Both parents spoke only French, as did the entire community. His father ran a shipyard, but could not read or write. His mother could only write in French. With his trunk packed and his tuition to LSU paid, $15 a semester, he hitchhiked to college in Baton Rouge, where he joined the ROTC. He spent four years there and got a degree in French and a certificate to teach. He wasn't the only French-speaking Cajun at LSU during the late 1930s. When I went to college, it was strictly English all over, very little French, except when we got together, the few of us that wanted to pass on a few jokes, we might say it in French that our English-speaking people who doesn't know French would not know what we say. So you were, most of most of French was forgotten in college. I met a lot of cases from Marksville, a lot of people from the Marksville area, and a few from the uh, the around the Lafayette area. I'm not talking about Lafayette proper, I'm talking about the little communities around Lafayette, like Scott, uh, Louisiana, and probably New Roads, uh, or New Iberia, uh, St. Martinsville, maybe one or two or three from these areas were there, and they all spoke French because they all spoke French at home. In 1938, after he graduated, he got a job at a local high school teaching French and coaching sports. Three years later, when his second lieutenant's commission came in, he joined the service as an Army officer. When he left his teaching job at Golden Meadow High School in early 1941, he did not return for eight years. He was sent to Camp Shelby, Mississippi for basic training. He was assigned to a regiment made up of mostly National Guardsmen from Ohio, so Petrie stuck out like a sore thumb. I was assigned to the 166th Infantry, which was part of the 37th Division. They were all from Ohio. I was a Cajun boy from Louisiana, and I was, I can't say that I was mistreated, I was not. But certainly I was not one of the boys. You had to kind of uh, bow to their ways, or else you could be booted in many ways. Which you did get all the dirty work. He bounced around the country at various training camps, and in 1943, he wound up in Maryland with 25 other officers to train with British specialists. Little did he know that because of his French and marksmanship, he was being recruited into the Office of Strategic Services, the OSS. He became proficient in the use of small weapons for close-range combat. He learned karate and developed skills in radio communications and Morse code. 
As part of his recruitment, the OSS did a full background check on him. They contacted people from his community, the priest, school principal, some teachers, and local business people from Cutoff. At the end of that specialty training, he was sent home on a 15-day pass to visit with his new wife and family. Following that short furlough, he was sent for additional training with OSS in Washington, D.C., before being shipped overseas. Once in England, he became part of a clandestine organization that prepared for the invasion of France as a member of a special forces operational group assigned to parachute behind the lines and work with the French underground. He spent the next several months training with British commandos for these special missions. After the, at the end of the training, what they do is they, they take you up for a for full, full flights to take you around four times and you drop out of a plane. That's your, parachute, that's your training for your parachute. And then at, at night, they take you out in a balloon and they drop you from a balloon, which is about 2,000 feet up. And then you drop to the ground. This time there's no wind, in other words, you just drop like a sack of potatoes. And then you become a paratrooper, and you're ready to go, then they assign you. Following his brief paratroop training, which basically lasted one day, he was promoted to major and assigned chief of the training section, likely because he was 27 years old at the time. As the individual OSS teams, the Jedbergs, the Special Forces Detachments, and the operational groups left England for the Normandy invasion in June and July of 1944, Petrie stayed behind until he was called for his first mission, codename Adrian. I dropped with four, four uh, ladies, but the, my commander, who was the one in charge of us, dropped in front of me, and he, he had two ladies with him. And then the plane in the back of us had four men, four did with Frenchmen. Some were French, some were English, some were Swedish. And uh, the commander was killed on the way down with the, one of the canisters got hooked up and when he fell, the canisters fell over and killed him. The canister had all the equipment in there, so they dropped them on the ground first. And then they came and we dropped next. There's only one shoot in England. You don't have two shoots. If the first shoot don't open up, you bye-bye. So you shoot, his shoot opened up, but the canister also came down with him, and it went through his shoot. Took him, took him to church, wrapped him up, and then waited for the army to overtake us, and then we shipped him back. French was expecting us. They marked, they marked the runway with lights, so the plane would come over and they'd drop us in this runway, and we'd fall anywhere in here, and the French would then come and get us right away and move, and move us away. The Germans were somewhere around, but we were in the way, but they're not close by. The Germans knew where they were, I mean, the French knew where they were. And we went about our business. We stayed back at the end of the line about three days, and then, and then the army patent was moving at that time. So we either go back and meet him, or else he would meet us. We were ready for another mission. Mission was just to go help these people, blow up bridges, uh, help the French get organized. Organize little pockets and just tell them, don't give up, it's coming, we're going to beat them yet. Being French, you can explain that in French. So, when did you realize that's why you were chosen? I don't think I ever realized that. I don't think it ever came. It was a soldier, period. You just don't realize it. But 
But I mean, you spoke French. Well, I figured that's what it was because I spoke French and that was also a good shot. Did anybody else with you speak French? Oh, yes. All these people spoke French. Wow, but some, some there spoken some Swedish, some there spoken some Italian, some there spoken some different languages. How many soldiers? Some of the, you said ladies, who were these ladies? Well, the ladies were just like we were. They were also ladies that were trained for that particular purpose. Now, some were French, and some were British, and some some were underground people that had been come out, and they come in just to bring you in, and then they go back out and bring another crew in. The only thing we knew is somebody was down there waiting for us, and we hoped it was the right thing. Resistance. That's what they were called, free French resistance. Resistance by dizzy stops. And they understood what you were talking about. Most of them speak the same way. They might call it a little bit differently, but they knew what it was all about. There was not that much difference in the French, especially around, not around Paris, but around the surrounding areas. It's somewhat like when you go to, to Canada, in one part of Canada, it's just like you find it you know, over here in Cut-Off and Golden Manor and Gallien. In fact, if you were to go talk to these people, you, they're just the same kind of life. And yet another part of Canada is strictly another French. I, I landed a court dog, court dog, which was, it was about 15 miles from the Swiss border. What we did is that, that was about at midnight, so they were waiting for the next morning. By that time, they had gotten a couple of cars, so we went hunting, went hunting for Germans. So we found some Germans tail part of maybe it was a tail end of a German troop, so maybe it was just a little pocket, and we just spray them. Just, just let them know that we were around, but then they'd have to chase it out, and normally they wouldn't do it because they didn't have the power to do it. Most of the time they were on retreat, and would blow up a bridge and they wouldn't cross it. And the two just continued doing that until you went back, tell the army to pick you up, and then you told you to go back to headquarters, and then we'd go all the way back. After Action Reports, recount the details of the late-night mission that began on September 10, 1944, when his small team dropped north of Dijon, France, not far from the border of Germany and Switzerland. Their mission? To rendezvous with the French Maquis, supply them with weapons, and coordinate attacks against the retreating Germans. That morning, the Allied commandos ambushed a German column, knocking out vehicles with 200 enemy killed or wounded. They continued these punishing hit-and-run raids on German positions for the next 10 days. Captain Orleans Petrie participated in three additional nighttime drops for similar missions with similar results. After the war, Major Petrie made it back to the United States and continued his military service with the Special Forces, serving as an instructor for the organization that ultimately evolved into the CIA. When his service to his country came to an end, he wound up back home on Bayou Lafouche, where he had a long career as a teacher and a coach and raised a family. His son Mike was born in 1945, and although the family knew about his military service during and after World War II, they did not know many of the details of his special missions as a member of OSS. We've asked Mike Petrie to come on the show and tell us a bit about his father. Welcome to the program, Mike. Thanks, Jason, uh, for having me. Um, 
uh, appreciate uh, everything you're doing for my dad and the, all occasions who were in World War II. It's good. Uh, they, I'm sure they would be happy to know that they're remembered in this way. Um, you know, where do you start with these guys? They were uh, people who uh, worked hard and always got the job done. You know, they were brought up in French-speaking families, and I know my dad was, and that was nothing but French when he was growing up. And, you know, he was someone who never passed the city of Thibodeau till he was going to LSU. He got a ride to LSU on, on the bus and got into uh, LSU, into the military, ROTC, and came out and taught and coached at uh, one of the local high schools for a year, and then he was called back into the service. Uh, he eventually, he trained with the, the, the British and the OSS and uh, jumped in the, behind enemy lines into France a couple of times. And uh, he didn't talk too much about it, but uh, none of them did. Uh, his growing up, I mean, he was, like I said, uh, all, everything was French when he was young. He, he, we, we learned French, but we didn't learn it until we were older. Of course, when we were young, we sat around and everybody spoke French and everywhere, the barbershops, outside of church, the stores, the houses. Uh, and that was, that's how it was back then. And, of course, we're kind of losing that now. But Dad, uh, he uh, used to go to uh, Fort Benning, Georgia in the summertime, and that was our vacation for two weeks. He'd teach a class there. Uh, with the paratroopers and stuff, and of course, all the, he was a lieutenant colonel, so he got saluted, and uh, we always saluted back, and we thought that was a big thing growing up. Dad, Dad was very proud of his Cajun heritage, and uh, you know, wasn't ashamed of uh, uh, speaking French when he when he had to. He was uh, a very uh, structured and disciplined individual. I guess he passed that on to us because of his army uh, experience. And he was a coach and a teacher and uh, influenced a lot of people's lives, as mo most of them did. He was in station in, uh, in Virginia for a while, and I know one time he told us that uh, they were training other agents like he was, and uh, the last day they'd have a big party, and uh, they made like they were drinking, but they weren't drinking and hoping to get somebody drunk and maybe uh, expose a spy from somewhere else. I remember him telling me that, and also my mom t told me when we were... Uh, she said that uh, I was born in 1945, and she said, you were conceived at uh, Catalina Island off of the coast of California. And I know they trained some agents there, and he was part of that. Growing up was, with him was uh, really excellent. You know, he, he guided us but never pushed us. And, uh, we, of course, we, everything was sports and school when we were with him because that's, that's all he did. Really, he helped us uh, grow up through the rest of our lives, my, myself and my two brothers, Pat and Peter. Once Dad showed us uh, a box he had with Captain O.A. Petrie on it before he was promoted, and inside of it he had uh, some maps on cloth, I guess, because that way they wouldn't deteriorate like paper would. He had some German money, some daggers that uh, they used, I guess, at one time. And uh, like I said, they didn't talk too much about it unless we asked him. He didn't say too much about it like most of them. I remember him telling me one time that he said we, they gave us a job to do, we did it, and we came back and said, what's next? And I guess that's why we won the war, and we're, we have what we have now in, in, in America. Again, uh, Jason, I'd like to thank you for, for, for having me on and being able to talk about Dad. And uh, I'm sure he'd be real happy that uh, he and all his, his, his co-veterans um, were able to be remembered in this way. They did a lot for, for us, and we, we should never forget them.
This concludes this episode of the Frenchie Podcast. I'm your host, Jason Terrio. Join us for more of the fascinating stories of the French-speaking Cajuns of World War II, as told by the veterans themselves. Special thanks to Cliff Terrio of the Ellender Library and Nickel State University, the Petrie family, and the master of sound engineering, Chris Segura, at the Center for Louisiana Studies. The Frenchie Podcast music is provided by Josh Caffrey and Chris Segura. <laughs>